welcome to Hopeful Conversations brought to you by Robbie's Hope Foundation. I am your host, Kari Eckert. Joining me today is Mark Donahue, a former military soldier and a current police officer in the metro area of Denver, and Mark's wife, Libby. Mark and Libby, thank you so much for joining me today, and welcome to Hopeful Conversations. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. We're excited. Mark, can you talk a bit about your experience working in the military compared to now working as a police officer? Yeah, sure. So um, they both have uh, a lot of similarities um, in the in the job that we do. Um, there's a lot of uh, tactical, I guess, decision making um, that kind of crosses both spectrums. Um, but uh, there's a lot of there's a lot more liability in that type of um, focus on a law enforcement um, profession as opposed to a military profession where, yes, there's certainly liability and we have our UCMJ, um, the Uniform Code of Military Justice in the military. Um, but in law enforcement, everything that we do is on TV. Um, so we have to be very cautious and uh, make sure that the message that we're delivering is uh, appropriate and um there's just a lot more scrutiny placed on law enforcement as opposed to when I was in the military. So uh, that's, is it increasing? Do you feel it increasing all of the time? Um, you know, yeah, I'd say probably right now, um, law enforcement is, um, I mean, we, we're always under a microscope, but right now it probably feels like more so than before. Okay. I'm from Minneapolis. So the George Floyd situation very much, I mean, I've certainly affected our whole country, but that's like right in my backyard where I grew up. Yeah. And, and, um, and, you know, in a, in a lot of ways it's, it's rightfully so that we should be under a microscope. I mean, we are a publicly trusted position and, um, we believe at my department, we are a very transparent agency and I'm very pro transparency. I think that, uh, in a lot of ways, a lot of the change that has come from this is probably necessary. Um, we should always be in any profession consistently evaluating um, our practices and our procedures. And, um, you know, when something starts to get dated or stale and it may not apply anymore, then it's time to, for us to re-examine it. And I think that uh, the last few years have caused every department across the country to re-examine everything from the ground up. And so in a lot of ways, uh, I think that it'll be good moving forward because I think we're getting a lot of progression in a in an industry that maybe was stagnant in some areas. Thank you. That's great insight. Libby, maybe this would be a good question for you. Um, can you talk about the differences and maybe the similarities that you see in Mark between his uh, mental attitude compared to when he was a military officer versus a police officer? Yeah. Um, I met Mark when he was out of the military. Um, and so when we first met, um, I think I really saw a different side of him as far as his mental health went. And so he introduced me to a lot of his support and his community as far as the mental health realm went. Um, he had taken me to an appointment through the Boulder Vet Center, which through our company, we donate 10% of our proceeds to them. And it was a, a huge change having them support him and address his mental health, including mine. Um, and then when he became a law enforcement officer, that was, that took a big nosedive on my mental health just because I was never, I didn't know any people in law enforcement and was a really new um, adventure for us. And it was really difficult for us to navigate, but I think we finally got our groove and figured out how we can support each other and how I can support him as well as our kids. And it's been a, it's been a challenge, but. 
a journey that continues. Yeah. I bet it was very scary at the beginning. I would have been scared as a spouse, I think, to see my spouse go into the police work. It was. It was definitely difficult for us to navigate, but we had such a great community and such a good support system. And that I think is what helped us helped us tremendously through our through our new adventure and journey that we did through law enforcement. Has serving in the military and on the force changed how you perceive different elements in your life? And if so, how does that affect your day-to-day routine and outlook on life? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think any job that you're in probably has an impact to the way that you that you have uh, or that you perceive the world. Um, certainly those jobs and probably more so the police work than the military um, has really impacted the way that um, I interact um, with people and my day to day, the hypervigilance and, um, you know, constantly being uh it, it it can become difficult when you are in um a profession like this for long enough to not always see the bad in society and see the bad sometimes in people um because that's truly what we for the most part are dealing with we generally aren't dealing um on a day-to-day with the um you know the soccer mom that's obeying all the laws and taking her kids to practice like that's just generally not what we see so to a, to a point, I think you end up becoming um, very cynical um, at times where probably other professions, you may not have quite that level because uh, you just see such terrible things um, and you see the way that people can be terrible to other people and it, and it can be taxing, um, which is a big part of the reason for our company is that, you know, there's a huge, um, there's been a lot of money poured into like the VA um, and a huge focus on mental health for uh, military and veterans and all that. But uh, truthfully, the the law enforcement and first responder world, um, that stigma is still very much there, uh, more so probably than with the military. Um, so I think we part of our, um, or at least specifically for me with my teams is always um, being very transparent with them and open about, um, you know, if I'm going to see counseling or, you know, if I've done a therapy like EMDR or something like I'm very open with people to try and start taking down that stigma because um, it, it still very much exists in the first responder world. Um, and it's not healthy for sure. Yeah, I can certainly relate to that. I was a funeral director, try prior to raising my children and um, now losing my son. And I often have thought about the responders that came to our house that evening. Um, They were incredibly gracious people and they handled it with such dignity. Um, But I like know where they came from at the end of our, you know, right in our neighborhood, the fire people and the police. And it's like so many times I just wanted to stop at that, you know, that station and just say, Thank you so much for um, like how you conducted yourself. I can't imagine how um, traumatizing that was for you. Um, that's super interesting that, you know, like you recognize that the VA um, is making strides. You read about it all the time, the grant money that must be there to be able to help veterans, which is certainly so, so important. But why we can't bring that same amount of resources and help to you know, first responders and police officers, I just, um, 
you never read about that, or I guess I don't, and I'm, I, I read all of the time. So I hope that we can change that. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And it's, um, it, and like you say, the, the fact that you recognize, um, even when the first responders showed up, um, and all that, a lot of times people truly forget that, um, first responders, especially police, um, are human beings. And, and sometimes it gets forgotten, um, that we go through the same emotions, um, the same stages of grief, the same everything that anybody else goes through. Um, and the amount that uh, the that a first responder sees or an officer, there was an article, um, I don't remember how long ago, and, and, I, and I wish I'd brought it um, with me, but there's an article that talks about the number of uh, like critical incidents that a normal person would see. And, and they kind of defined it, it was a study that they did, and they defined it as uh, basically a something where you are so overwhelmed with um, either emotion or decision-making um, that your, your body, you just, you're not sure what to do. So basically, you know, seeing a dead person or, um, you know, some of these traumatic things and the average person in a lifetime experiences four of what they defined as these critical incidents. And they said that a 20 year officer will experience about 800 uh, of these. And so, and that's what's forgotten is that we are still the same people um, that live on your block and that take our kids to your school. And we are still people, but we are experiencing this exponential level of uh trauma compared to a normal person and um and there is get it's starting to to change and there is starting to be more focus put on it but um just the fact that people like you recognize that is it means a lot because it gets overlooked a lot we're all humans we're all vulnerable um i don't know i like i often think like educators go into the field of education because they care about kids um is there like a generalization why a person chooses to go into like military or versus, or yeah, not, probably not military. How about if I say, is there a generalization that could be made of people that go into serving their community in the capacity of a police officer or an EMT or that type of category? Um, yeah, I think it's, it's truthfully people that want to help. Um, that that's the the amount and the impact that you can have every day that you go to work, just like um, Libby with uh, in social work, the amount of impact that we can have on a daily basis with um, and actually touch somebody's life is something that, um, you know, a lot of professions you just don't get, you don't get to have that impact. And I think that's what draws a lot of people like us to these professions is that we want to make an impact and we want to help people um, save lives. And the most proud moments I've ever had were lives that I've saved. It's not the big arrests or any of that. I mean, that's all great, but it's how did you impact somebody? You get to go out every day and stop and help somebody shovel their walks because they're elderly and it's snowing out, you know, go play basketball with a kid in the street and everyone's not looking at you like you're weird. You stopped your car to go play basketball with a kid. It's a police officer. Like there's that trust of community that allows us into people's lives in in ways that allow us to impact them and you know most professions and and jobs out there just don't have that so do you still feel like you're able to make that impact to the degree that you want in like 2022 um yeah i I think we do sure um you know the the news uh in my experience in the last few years has really um a lot of the media has fueled things that I don't know fully existed to the extent that they made them seem. Um, the, we get, we got so much support at times from people that, uh, that really showed us that we were still making that impact regardless of what was being 
kind of portrayed in the media. So I think, yeah, we, we still, the ability is still there. And I think the support pendulum is swinging back um, a little bit more to, to center from 2020. Good, good. And Libby, what age group do you work with in the field of social work? Yeah, so I um, work with human services. And so I work with families anywhere from newborns to age 18. Okay. Now, are you still feeling like you can make an impact every, that has to be taxing work as well. I've been at the department for eight years and I love it. Every day is different. Every day is chaos. But um, I think that's my, something that I'm good at is just kind of working with families in the time of crisis. And that's kind of what we're both good at, which is we have some really interesting dinner time conversations, but (laughs) I definitely think that we chose professions that we could make a positive impact on our communities and we just want to help. Thank you for the work that you do. Um, I guess I can, either one of you can answer this, but what has your profession like taught you about mental health, like the military, the police force, or maybe Libby, your training, like what's the normal curriculum if you were, were to put. Go for it. Yeah. Um, our department's really great. Um, as far as secondary trauma, we have a lot of trainings. We have to do at least 40 hours a year. And a lot of those trainings are based on that secondary trauma piece on what you see and how we can support you and mental health and, you know, just having that headspace and making sure that you're supported. So our department does a really good job at making sure that we know that we have counselors, we know that we have therapists, we know that we, our supervisors always have that wraparound support. Um, So I think they've been really good at that. And same with Mark's department. He's got a great chaplain that has always been there for us, no matter what, at the drop of a hat, you can call him at any time and he'll give you the advice that you need and that support and encouragement that you're doing the right thing and that he's there for us no matter what. Good. Support network is so important as is an education. Yeah. Do veterans, does the military do very much training on mental health back? Not back when I was active. Um, I was active duty from 2004 to 2008 in the Marine Corps. And I don't really I don't really remember much of any talk about mental health. It was all focused on deployments and um, heading back overseas. So that there really wasn't much of that um, that talk. And and certainly the the stigma very much existed back then that you just didn't get help. You you didn't talk about any of this stuff um, until you get out, and then you gotta figure it out. Jump through hoops to get that support. And when we first met, I remember telling him, I'm like we've got to talk to somebody to make sure that you're supported and that you're okay and that it's okay to not be okay. I know that's a huge mission statement for you guys. And I told him the same thing. I'm like, it's, it's okay for us to get help and have somebody talk to us about your mental health and making sure that you are supported. Yeah. So that took us a, a little bit, but it definitely, definitely helped. Given your time spent serving in the military and the constant unknowns of your job, how do you maintain a positive attitude and what can you tell us about applying that positive positivity to your own life? Um, you know, I think that you got to find, everybody needs to find the thing that motivates them. Um, and the thing that they, that is the reason they get up in, in the morning. It doesn't matter what, how great or terrible of a job you have. Um, you know, as long as you have that thing in your life, which for me is my family, um, Libby and our daughters, that as long as you have that, you know, that shining light that helps you get up in, in the morning, then 
the job for me kind of is the job and there's a, a level of compartmentalizing um, A from B um, in a lot of ways that for me, that's kind of how I um, can stay positive is when I'm at work, it's work. And when I come home, we'll talk about our days to an extent, but um, really I don't relive my whole day a second time. I try to compartmentalize it and leave it at work so that when I'm home, I can be focused on home. Um, because a lot of times when I was in on-call positions, like for the SWAT team or whatever, it was very difficult for me to compartmentalize um, everything because the phone would ring 24 hours a day and um, work bled over into personal life and getting called out in the middle of the night repeatedly. And all of that was hard. It was, uh, it was as if we were both um, on call all the time. So um, that, that's kind of how I do it, I think. Compartmentalize. Um, for me, that's and your that's, priorities is what I hear. Yes, very much prioritize and uh, find out what makes you happy and um, spend your time when you're not at work, or if it works out that you can do it while you're at work, um, doing what makes you happy. And you know, for me, it's family to focus on and helping people, which luckily for me is something that I get to do at work. So that helps a lot. So thank you, Libby. How do you stay positive? Oh, geez. <laughs> um, Mark and I are really different. So when he is stressed out or overwhelmed with the job or, you know, whatever, he just likes to be alone and kind of just like do his own thing. And I'm like, Hey, let's go see a therapist. Hey, let's go for a walk. Let's do self-care. Let's do all the stuff. And he's like, Nope, I just need to sit here. So we're very different in that aspect, but mine's definitely the same. Our girls are wonderful and they keep us busy and, um, keep us on our toes for sure. And, um, I think another reason that we started the business and company that we did is that I could never sit still. Like he would have to sit down and, and process his day. And I was like, well, what can, what can I do? And so I would make all these necklaces. And that was like my, my coping skill was making these necklaces. Cause then I could sit and focus on processing my day, but then also fidget and move and, and do all the things. We all do it differently. And if like it's in a relationship, if you can respect the way the other person does it, and um, I think you can move together so much more positively. I know for my husband and I going through this grief journey, I remember because of my background as a um, funeral director, I did a lot of bereavement counseling training. Um, and I remember telling Jason that, hey, we're going to be doing this very differently. I know that. Like, I know this is going to look very different. Um, and that's okay. And we have had to go back to that, um, remind each other. Cause sometimes you think, oh, my way is better, but like, no, remember we do this differently. We do it together, but we do it differently. Um, yeah, and I, took, oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, this is good. It took me a really long time to realize that Mark had a very different way of processing trauma and grief than I did. And so it took us a while to get on the same page because I had expectations of him processing things the way I wanted to do it. And so we finally found this middle ground of, okay, he needs to sit down and decompress and I need to go fiddle and make crafts and go for a run. Active versus that's, it's so good. Yeah. I, um, I feel like something else that helps me like process cause yes, we work in suicide prevention, but sadly, um, we, part of prevention is um, kind of some postvention work as well. And you have to help kids in crisis because um, Jason and I are very much trusted adults in our community. Um, and it's hard. It's very, very hard. 
um, in my way of just like being able to continue to do this work um, after four years of Robbie's loss, Robbie's death is like, I have to find something, something to be grateful for every single month, every single day, like just have to. And I have to remind myself, like when I go down that negative path, like what is that thing that's this morning that I said I'm grateful for? Um, like today, day, yeah, it's, it's good. I like that. That's a great way to, we should start that. November gratitude, like there's, but just changing, like being able to be notice the good versus, you know, like we were talking about society and Mark, how you see so much negative, negative, negative. You don't see the good in people, um, just because of what your job calls for. Um, it's tough. Yeah. Okay. Um, let's see. What advice, this is, we can ask both of you this separately. I think this is a great question because of Robbie's hope and the impact that we have on teens and we have a lot of teen listeners. What um, advice, Mark, would you give to a teen wanting to get involved in the military or in the police force? Uh, I think they're both fantastic careers. Um, they, there's a lot of maturity that comes with this. Um, I, I matured exponentially uh, when I was first enlisted compared to when I got out of the military. Um, it forces you to grow up. Uh, granted, I don't know quite what it's like to serve now post-war, but um, especially for the Marine Corps, they still have systems in place that will force you to, you know, to grow up, but you'll learn so many skills along the way and you'll learn leadership and you'll learn um, these powerful um, development traits for uh, success when you get out. Um, and then if you decide you wanna to go to college, there's systems in place to help you pay for college and be supported through the military um, and all that. So I have always been a huge proponent of people joining the military and anybody that ever asks me, and I will tell them, you know, there is the negative too. You can be away from your family and there is a lot of stress involved in it because you've probably never been involved in anything close to as stressful as Marine Corps boot camp when you first get there. Um, and I can't speak for the other services, but they, they have similar systems in place. Mm -hmm. but, um, you will come through it um, forged into a new person that you were not when you entered. Um, and for law enforcement, I think it's still a fantastic profession. Um, I think there's a lot of good that you can do and a huge impact that you can make. Uh, I will tell you, not everybody's cut out to be a police officer, though. Um, you have to have... You have to have uh, the ability to wear both the hats of um, the warrior and the um, guardian. And a lot of times it is difficult for people to have both of those hats that they can wear a lot. We don't want people that are only warriors that are just out there looking for the next fight that they can get into um, because that's that, those are the wrong people for the job. So kind of the mindset of a potential like person that could go in. I like that warrior and guardian yep that, what are some characteristics that someone to be a guardian needs uh you got to be able to be empathetic and compassionate um we have i've seen a lot of officers that that don't really possess that where you're on a scene where somebody may have just lost a loved one or um or something and they just don't have the ability to communicate with them empathetically and it's it's it makes it worse um for the person going through that grief process when um, cause all, all eyes are on you when you step through the door, everybody's focused on every word that comes out of your mouth. And if you're not, you're not able to recognize and read a room and, um, 
you know, communicate effectively. Uh, I mean, sometimes it, it, it adds a lot of stress to an already stressful situation. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, the, the communication skills are huge as a police officer um, and, and the ability to read people both for good and bad to tell, um, you know, on, on a criminal being able to read them and mm -hmm. what what is what are they about to do? What are they thinking? But also being able to read a person going through grief and know how to communicate with them and pick up um, pick up the cues and the clues that they're dropping within the conversation, pick those up and run with them to to help them process what they're doing. Thank you. Libby, what about the field of social work? Do you, what would your advice be for young people? Yeah, I'd always encourage people to go into social work um, and casework. It's amazing. I've been at the department for eight years and if I didn't love it, I wouldn't be there. Um, I think the opportunity to work with families at their lowest point in time of crisis and be that person that walks in the door to try and fix it, I think speaks volumes. It's, it's a great job. It's same thing, being empathetic and compassionate. And if your heart's not in it, you're really not meant to be there. I think you go through a lot of stress and a lot of trauma seeing families at their worst, um, but being able to support them and encourage them to to make the right choice. And I mean, it's it's an amazing career. And probably a lot of opportunities, I would suspect, in both fields, right? Like we need Absolutely. people in both of these fields. I'm just curious, Mark, has your department been able to um, the rollout with 988 is you or like, and also like crisis informed officers. Is that something that your department has resources to support? I'm not familiar with 988. Um, I can explain are, it. Yeah, sure. Go ahead. So it's a federally mandated um, change. Um, 911 took 15 years to roll out back in, I don't know what, like maybe in the 80s. Um, and 988 is for a person, um, like if I, for someone who is in crisis, um, mental crisis versus a physical crisis. So um, like when you call and it's, it, it rolled out this summer with like telecom, like um, they had to be able to support it. Um, and in the state of Colorado, if you called 988 right now, the phone number would be um, routed to Colorado Crisis Services versus your local police department therefore initiating potentially a different response, um, like a crisis-informed officer to be able to de-escalate a situation versus, with a person that's in crisis, potentially you know, threatening to take their life, um, hurt themselves versus hurt someone else. Um, so if the um, department is able to respond without lights, um, potentially just EMTs versus maybe a police officer, um, and so this was actually, um, it was federal legislation. Cory Gardner, Senator Cory Gardner was like one of the primary bill writers um, and it passed nationally, um, but it's, and it's rolled out really, really fast, like 15 months compared to 15 years. Um, and it was an unfunded mandate. So um, puts a lot of tax and a lot of pressure on, you know, a metro area department, I think we'll be able to respond um, better than like a rural department where they're already spread so thin and to be able to meet all of the requirements. Um, I think in theory, it's a very, very good thing, but we can't, it's not a perfect system and it's not gonna, you know, like, we can't just push the switch and it's gonna work right now. Um, so, I mean, I, 
I can tell you maybe the reason that I'm not super familiar with it. All of our officers are um, trained in CIT, which is crisis. You services. are. Yeah. So it's a mandate from our chief. So we've been trained. Um, our whole department's been trained in its mandate. As soon as you get through the door that you are put into the uh, CIT um, certification process. So CIT uh, stands for uh, crisis intervention training. Okay. And what does that training look like? So it's a lot of de-escalation, um, a lot of recognizing uh, situations where, you know, somebody may have Alzheimer's or they may have uh, schizophrenia and learning um, and recognizing the signs of those uh, as you're interacting with somebody because, you know, they may, if they're in crisis, sometimes, um, and, and a lot of times in my experience, um, narcotics can mimic a lot of the mm -hmm. um a lot of the same um, signs or symptoms. Yeah. So coming up uh, with somebody that may be in a schizophrenic crisis can often look a lot like somebody that's smoked a ton of drugs, um, mm. but trying to recognize that, uh, you know, this may be a situation that isn't the narcotics and what are the signs that we have around us. And if we've put flags on an address when an officer responds out there so that they know that this may be a mental health call. Um, we also have a co-responder, um, which is a licensed clinical social worker that works for our department. Nice. So, um, at least during the week when she is there, and we are uh, probably going to add another one more than likely next year. So Good. he goes out with an officer and uh, responds to a lot of these calls and um, can help us also navigate some of the systems that are in place once we get someone to the hospital so that they're not released within, you know, 20 minutes. We've had those where we'll take someone in on a mental health hold that's clearly in crisis and they'll be right back out in the city within three hours. And I mean, so it's, uh, they can help us navigate that to make sure that they get the help that they need, um, whether sometimes, whether they realize they need it or not. Um, so. Libby used that good word wraparound services. Like it's not easy to, these problems are complex. They're not just like, Oh, we drop this, take this person here and they get the help that they need like instantly. Like, um, our systems are just so, so taxed. Um, Interesting conversation. So CIT, I'm so grateful for that and just the work that both of you are doing. Um, we wrap up our conversations and I'll ask this to both of you separately. Um, what advice does the world need to hear right now? Or just what does the world need to hear right now? One of you can go first and then we'll follow up with the next. Advice for the world. Again, I think we always stick to it's okay to not be okay. And we just want to encourage people that it's okay to get help. It's okay to, to ask somebody and say, you know, my mental health or my behavioral health is not great. And, and what can I do or how can you help me? Thank you, Libby. It's okay to not be okay. I could not agree more. How about you, Mark? What does the world need to hear right now? I think they'd, uh, I would say that everybody needs to understand that, um, you know, tomorrow is always a new day. And sometimes we get very myopically focused on what one problem is in our life. And it seems to overwhelm um, every decision we make throughout the day is almost seen through the lens of our, of our problem. And just realizing that tomorrow is another day. And, you know, sometimes it is difficult to see um, a bright future. So uh, just like in the military, um, you take it one step at a time. And, um, you know, if you can't 
if you can't focus all the way to the next day, then focus on the next five minutes and the next 10 minutes. And eventually um, you will reach tomorrow. And um, tomorrow may be a much better day than today was, but um, not making not making a decision based on um, one bad day uh, that will affect the rest of your life, regardless of what that that is. Um, just realizing that there's a there's a lot of great things in this world, and um, if we can get past whatever our our one problem is and crush that demon to move on to uh, a brighter future, I think. Thank you. I have a quote right here on my computer screen, and it says, talking about our problems is our greatest addiction. Break the habit. Talk about your joy. Um, I love that. That's good. It's a great I, one. I think I, I was kind of in a negative mindset for a while. I was going through a rough, rough patch with my grief, and I needed to remind myself of that. Um, I also like how you just emphasize, like, instead of focusing on that one thing, and especially for our teens developmentally, it's very um, developmentally, I don't know the appropriate is the right word, but um, to get fixated on one thing. And when you're hurt, when you're crushed and living in 2022 with social media and everything else, um, to learn to be able to see past that and get past that. Um, we pick the word hope and we share with our youth and with our parents and for everyone to hold on pain ends. Hold on, pain ends. Um, thank you, Libby. Thank you, Mark, so much for your time. Really, really appreciate it. Um, to our listeners, be sure to tune in next time to our next episode. Until then, remember, hold on, pain ends.